Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 266. And with that number, what the hey, let's give another shout out to Heather O'Reilly, a.k.a. Heyo, as she will play her final professional soccer game this weekend in the NWSL Championship game. Last season... O'Reilly played just 266 minutes across the whole season for the Carolina Courage. And now the last several weeks, she has played the full 90 or like last weekend, the full 120, uh, stepping in for the injured Merritt Mathias. So shout out to Heather O'Reilly. So two chats today. First with Dan Laletta from Equalizer Soccer. We talked about the NWSL expansion news, uh, the official announcement about Louisville, what few rumors we've heard about Sacramento for 2020 and also talked about the big championship game this weekend. And then I chatted with Sandra Herrera from Hot Time in Old Town. We talked about Chicago's historic semifinal win. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Dan LaLetta from Equalizer Soccer, ready to talk. What else? NWSL championship game and more importantly, expansion. And we're not talking hypothetically, Dan. I mean, expansion. It's been announced. It's been announced and it's been announced for 2021, which is something that you and I have been discussing probably since we've known each other. (laughs) Because <laughs> we got to know each other after the Dash came into the league, which they had about right. 10 minutes to get ready for their first game. Yeah, and just a few. And I think what Orlando had maybe a couple more minutes than the Dash. Right. And, and Utah I think was, Orlando Utah was somewhere in between. <laughs> right. And Utah didn't have to build a roster because they inherited the Kansas City roster. And I think Orlando right. knew they were probably coming in. I think the Dash literally woke up one day and said, hey, let's join the NWSL. And about a week later, they were in. But we've never had it announced before the final. The only weird thing here, because you can't do everything, anything completely straight up, is that it still looks like there will be a team coming in for 2020, though that's not finalized. But we do have one team for 2021, and I think the benefits are immense. On the field, off the field, uh, just with your gen, you know, the general way that your league appears in public, I think it's fantastic. And that's, of course, Louisville City FC. Uh, they won't have the same name, I don't believe, just like all the other teams. I know the MLS teams can't have the same names because of the uniform, or the apparel deals. I'm not sure how that works with the USL Championship, but let's hope they get a little bit of a more creative name. But, yeah, they'll be launching in April of 2021, so they'll have an 18-month run-up, and hopefully they take full advantage of it. And they already have a venue that's appropriate, uh, yep. or rather, it's almost it's almost finished being built. You know, size wise, um, of course, Amanda Duffy. That's the club she used to work at. So you know, uh, we wouldn't be surprised if she ends up back there. You know, considering that there's a search for an NWSL commissioner going on. I uh, like. We supposedly uh, had that for two years before she became president. But yeah, supposedly again, there's a search going on. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I like geographically where Louisville falls. It kind of, you know, is in the middle of a space that has no teams uh, and can shorten some trips. You know, that'll be an easy trip for North Carolina, Chicago, you know, et et cetera. Um, 
I like that you had uh, Rose Lavelle uh, before the announcement was final saying, I'd love to have it here because obviously she's from Ohio, but that's not far from, from Kentucky. Uh, so really excited that that's official, that you were able to tease it on the broadcast, on the semifinal broadcast Sunday. Um, and then that's something that coaches can plan for, right? I mean, I think this has been the biggest challenge uh, for the coaches the last couple of seasons, especially when they're going into the draft, like you know that they're looking at sometimes using picks or trading picks based on what they think they might need uh, when expansion comes into play, right? Like we, it really, it really seemed like some of the drafting in 2018 was they were thinking that expansion was was coming and it and it and it wasn't, and we actually had contraction. But well, well, it's different for that. Every year, Rory Williams comes out of the draft with all these future picks, and he always says in passing, you know, we did X, Y, and Z to protect against expansion, which means either I'm going to lose a couple of players so I've got extra draft picks to replenish them, or I have draft picks to use as a bargaining tool against my players getting picked in the expansion draft. So, yes, teams that trade ahead into the 2021 draft will have somewhat of an advantage. And as I wrote in part of my column, I think this puts an extra bit of pressure on teams like Sky Blue and teams like the Dash who haven't been in the playoffs in a long time because they're going to lose players and they're going to get bumped down the draft ladder. And I do think it is a concern if we go to 10 and then maybe 12. That the I don't think – it's not that there aren't good players in the player pool – that could be playing on NWSL teams right now, but I don't think the player pool right now is as big as it maybe needs to be. And, you know, if we're going to start losing more international players back over to Europe, that could be a bit of an issue. But, yeah, the coaches are going to be uh, very pleased to know. I mean, the coaches hate expansion drafts just because they don't like to lose players for no particular reason. They, you know, they feel like if, right. they, you know, the deeper teams, teams like Chicago and Portland who have worked – with younger players to build them up, like a Simone Charlie, as an example, in Portland, who spent all of 2018 just as an extra player, got a little bit of time in 2019, we'll see what she is in 2020, then all of a sudden, if she's just good enough to be on the wrong end of the protected list and then goes to another team, then Mark Parsons is thinking, well, I developed this player for three years to give to Louisville. So none of the coaches don't like it, but um, they will be very much appreciative of the knowledge that it is absolutely happening. Well, and I also feel like uh, the expanded rosters this season, a lot of those players didn't necessarily get to see a lot of minutes, right? Because hey, now you've got... Now, now you've got 22 to 26 players per team, and of course you only suit up 18 and you only play 14. But that means that there's a bigger pool of, of players who have been in these professional environments week in, week out. Uh, so I feel like there's almost a group waiting in the wings that can step in in a way that we didn't have for Dash expansion or Orlando expansion. Oh, for sure. And the more, you know, players still aren't making a lot of money, but they're making a lot more than they did. And the number of players who were 24, 25, and regular players that are retiring because they're not making enough money and probably don't have a chance to get on the national team is a lot lower than it was in their first few years of the league. But it's interesting when you say that so many players are not playing, because I was saying for a long time that, yeah, I think rosters should be bigger. You should be able to practice 11 v. 11, even when you have a couple of injuries and whatnot, and you should just be able to not 
you know, especially with nine teams with all the midweek games, to not have to push players to go Wednesday weekend Wednesday. But I was also always said, you know, as an owner, most of the coaches are only playing 16, 17 players. So why do I want to pay for a bigger roster when the coach is already not using the full roster? So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. Also, if we expand could, season, could you imagine a Premier League team or a La Liga team going, why am I paying for more than 17 players? Well, you know, I don't honestly, <laughs> I can't tell you how many players those teams rotate on a regular basis. I'm just saying that if I'm an owner and I'm on a shoestring budget and my coach is basically playing 17 of my 20, then I would, be, you know, I would raise my hand and say, why are we paying for extra players? Here. But I but think what we, we what we saw this year with World Cup and what we'll see with the with the Olympics is so many more players got got used. And then oh, yeah, you look at the sure. situation you look at the situation like the rain had. Uh, if you didn't have that extra roster, they would have been screwed in such a way that they would not have seen the playoffs. Probably, and you know, they would have had players, but they probably would have been different players because they would have had different kind of roster flexibility. Right in trying right. to replenish all the players that got injured, and they probably wouldn't have been able to sign a player like Taylor Smith, and we'll see how that works out going forward. They signed her knowing she wouldn't play all season, but she is getting healthy and ready to play next year. They probably couldn't have done that had they not had the extra roster space. So we also have uh, the possibility of still a 2020 team coming in. Um, so yeah. what what have you heard about that? Well, all that's, I think that's are, really important to give us the tenth team, right? I think so the tenth team is important. Team. Not not at yeah. all costs. You know, I don't. I, you know, you got to have the right team, and you, it's important to keep the teams that are in um, healthy. You know, we're still looking for Sky Blue to announce a venue, and it would be nice if they announce a better venue. But we need to hear about it at some point, and they'd like to start selling season tickets. But, but all. Indications are that Sacramento is very close to a done deal. Now, they just finally, after years and years of circling each other, finally got into Major League Soccer. I think that announcement was Monday. They're coming in right. 20, 2022. Um, but all indications are that they're in the final stages of hammering out the deal to come into the NWSL in 2020. I think that would be fascinating to see an NWSL team up and running before a Major League Soccer team. They do have a USL team, so it wouldn't be like they were just running a women's team and not a men's team. But this idea that you've got to start the MLS team first, I actually think is kind of backwards. Because if the MLS operation is like three times as big as the NWSL operation, wouldn't it behoove you to get the smaller operation up and running and almost like a soft launch to go to the bigger operation and you might be able to get more interest in the women's team if you launch it before the men's team is there so we will see what happens um again it's one of those things you you know let's get going because we've got to you know the coaches are i mean you know seven of the nine teams are in off-season mode at this point and and coaches want to know i I mostly agree with your point about uh starting a women's team's women's team first I, I think with Orlando back in the day they had already sunk their teeth into starting an MLS team before NWSL was on their radar you know right. um, but yeah it's it's I, I think there's still that mindset of it's a you know I, I hate I hate to say it afterthought 
in in some cases, or just add on in the more p- positive cases. Um, and of course, we've seen how you know Portland. It's it's really hey, these are you know it's all part of the same club. It's PTFC, right? You know, um, we haven't seen that yet with Houston or or Orlando, um, but like. Uh, Caitlin Bess wrote about for for Equalizer. It's like, hey, you know, if if you look at some of the NFL teams with attendance struggling, and you see their partner men's team attendance struggling too, it's like, look, it's you know, it's either all good or all bad. You know, it, it seems like. But my me- meandering point is, um, yeah, I, I think it depends so much on the specific city, and really what's the status of their venue, right? Like if you're putting all of your eggs in the basket of we have to get a big venue ready, you know, that's 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 going to be pretty challenging. I love the idea of Sacramento coming in because one, they've had an operating team of a non-MLS size for a while. I mean, it reminds me of North Carolina, right? Where it's, it's like, this is a group that's having to do lots more grassroots uh, because they're not the high-profile league. Um, it's a solid market that's not dominated by a lot of other sports, not oversaturated, but still a large enough population center. Um, I love the idea that we're getting something on the West Coast, Um and I'm actually happy that it's not L.A. because just like we've seen in NFL, they're like, oh, it's it's the biggest metro or, or media market in the U.S. without an NFL team before they, before they finally got an, their NFL team back. It's like, but there's way too many things to do in L.A., right? Well, like, I've it, lived in New York my entire life, and I've always followed these smaller startup leagues. Every single one, I hear the same tune. There's got to be a team in New York. It's the biggest media market in the country. I can tell you, the New York Liberty came into the WNBA. They had stars. They played in Madison Square Garden. They were in four of the first six finals. Nobody cared. New York City FC won the Eastern Conference. They're playing. They've got a playoff game tonight at Yankee Stadium. I guess by the time this comes out, game will have already happened. But nobody cares. Like that should be the front. That should be the back page of the newspapers in New York City right now. Yankees are out. Football team just had a disaster weekend. Nobody cares. The Red Bulls have been in the playoffs ten years in a row. Nobody cares. I'm not saying that there's not a fan base and that there's not a soccer community that cares, but by and large, none of those teams have even remotely broken into the social conscious of this city yet, and I imagine it's the same thing so, so, in Los yeah. Angeles. So instead of saying nobody cares, it's like the the market's so crowded that your average person doesn't get a chance to hear about it. Well, let me put it this way. Maybe not nobody cares, but if you came to Manhattan this afternoon and walked down the street, I don't think you would walk down the street and then say, hey, is there a big soccer match tonight? Whereas I think if you walked down the street last week, you might have said, hey, what's about this Yankees-Astro series? <laughs> yeah, why are all these people wearing right. Yankees and Astros jerseys? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, I'm so excited in the airport in Chicago Sunday night to see some people in Red Stars jerseys. I'm like, yeah! <laughs> traveling, yeah. well, I guess those aren't traveling fans. Well, they must have traveled from elsewhere um, to come to Chicago, but yeah. Yeah, hopefully. You know what? I think that's fantastic. I remember being in a hotel for the, uh, wasn't, well, it was um, 
the playoff game in North Carolina a couple of years ago, and I got in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman in the elevator with me, and her something on her T-shirt said Shalina. And my first thought was, oh, Shalina Zadorsky. Like, wonder what that's about. And then I realized, like, wait a minute, I'm in town for a women's soccer match. That might actually be Shalina Zadorsky. And it turned out it was someone, and I realized she was actually <laughs> wearing, like, full spirit gear. And even though the spirit weren't in that game, I guess she had come into town or lived there and come in. But, like, it's not in my mindset that when I, you know, it's in my brain that when I hear something about, like, Shalina Zadorsky, like nobody else you know, yeah, the soccer crowd is going to really know. Yeah. Who we're so I used to people it. not knowing what we're talking about. Exactly. I think <laughs> Louisville and Sacramento both are the types of cities that I've been clamoring for for a long time. Sacramento has the Kings and they have the Sacramento Republic and they've got AAA baseball. Louisville has AAA baseball, Louisville City. I'm sure there's other teams. I know Louisville's huge into college basketball and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I think you've got a shot. I think you've got a better shot there for those NWSL teams to be a big deal, to get space in the newspapers, to get on the local television coverage than you do in New York, than you do in Los Angeles, which doesn't mean that you don't go to New York and Los Angeles. It just means that I think it's a myth that you need to be there. Yes. Yeah, totally, totally agree. So, so say Sacramento comes on for 2020. Um, what happens expansion draft wise? I mean, do you think we'll have the same rules as we had the last expansion draft, which is for Orlando, where non-playoff teams can protect 10 players, playoff teams only can protect nine, and all teams can only protect two of their national team allocations? I've heard some whispers that it's going to be 10 protected across the board. Remember, rosters are bigger, so protecting the same number would leave more players exposed. I think likely you do, too, but I also think you've got to sit down and think it through because if you're adding Louisville for 2021, and most people seem to think there will be another team for 2021, so if this thing is really stabilized now and we're not going to lose Sky Blue and we're not going to lose some of the other independent teams, and it's going to go 9, 10, 12. You've got to sit back and think, how do we bridge the gap from 9 to 12? Do we want players? Lo- do we want teams losing players in consecutive years? Do we want uh, Sacramento coming in in 2020 and then immediately having to leave players exposed for 2021? So I think it's really fast. it'll be really fascinating to see kind of how that goes. But one thing I think is that we've got to, you got to really start to think about uh, like a designated player rule now, because you got to get players from the outside coming in and making these teams better. Cause there's only so many American allocated players to go around. And let's say that the rosters parse out in 2020, that there are only two per team. Uh, I think there's actually more than that in the pool altogether, but you know, like, and the pool is supposed to be shrinking per the CBA, the number of contracts per year. Exactly. And, but let's say there aren't like, what if the new teams that come in in 2021, like what if they don't have access to any American players? Or what if the only players they have access to are like Emily Sonnet and Alyssa Nair, who are fine players, but do you really want to start your team with a goalkeeper and a defender who may center back? Yeah you know, who may or may not be already past her peak in the league. So, I, you know, I think it is interesting. But, you know, I think with this Sam 
occur, possibly leaving to go to Europe, I do think it's a fair discussion to say, you know what, if the Thorns want to reach in and pull out a spare million dollars and see if they can get Ada Hegerberg to come over above and beyond the cap, I don't see how that's a bad thing for this league. And even if, you know, obviously, you know, you don't want to just look at MLS and say, well, that's how they did it. That's how the women should do it. But the teams that have spent the most on designated players in MLS are not necessarily the teams with the most trophies either. Well, and, and, I agree that, you know, you shouldn't do things just because MLS did it, but it's really the only template to refer to where, you know, the European leagues and other leagues, how they've grown and evolved, have so little connection to how soccer has evolved in the U.S. that I think MLS is the best template to look at and go, okay, that worked. Let's do that. That didn't work. Let's not do that. Like, it's, it's, it's great to have something to reference of like, Huh, they made that mistake. Let's not make that mistake. It's or also they they did that, but it might not work for us. It, absolutely, and it's also beyond dispute that the line of demarcation for old MLS and new MLS is the Beckham rule and the Beckham arrival. Everything Definitely. can be separated into what happened before that happens and what happened since that happened. Yeah, uh, I still remember. Uh, Christmas of that year, right before Christmas, I was in Bangkok of all places, uh, which is like the world's capital for knockoff soccer jerseys. And I was stunned to see LA Galaxy knockoff jerseys with Beckham's name on it. And that's when I really understood the brilliance of the signing was less about uh, just the pure getting Beckham on your team because obviously he was already at the end of his career, but that suddenly there were people in Asia wanting to <laughs> follow MLS yeah. and were aware of of LA Galaxy. And, and- what what what's funny I think with NWSL since uh, you know you had the YouTube streams available internationally from the very beginning, in a way NWSL has this international footprint. We've just never taken advantage of it. Absolutely. And a couple quick uh, things about the Beckham thing. One, he got he was spotted once in the Royal Box at Wimbledon, and there were immediately complaints like, why isn't he with the team? He's, you know, he should be training with the Galaxy. You know, he should be like everybody else on the team. And somebody else said, all fair points, but how many other sports leagues in America have ever had somebody in the Royal Box at Wimbledon? That is a big deal to be in the Royal Box at Wimbledon. Second yeah. thing is, I was in Vancouver in the fall of oh, it was November of 2007. That was Beckham's first year. He came over that summer to play for the Galaxy. The Whitecaps were still four years away from being in MLS, but there was a friendly, not while I was there. I think it was a week or ten days after I left, between the uh, whatever league the Whitecaps were in at the time and the Galaxy, and it was it like had taken over the city that the Beckham Galaxy were coming for a friendly, which as far as I know, that match was kind of the springboard to getting the Whitecaps actually up and into Major League Soccer. So it really was a phenomenon. I don't, there's no female player in the world right now that has anything close to the type of cachet that David Beckham had, but I do think it's worth it to maybe try to come up with a mechanism to get some other players over here. And I think players would come. I think if you paid players to come here and get competitive matches all the time, I think I think people would come here. Yeah, definitely. So so let's turn our eyes to this weekend. Uh, 
to what's right in front of us, North Carolina hosting Chicago in the 2019 final. First time for North Carolina to get to host the final. Um, and this will mean that, that they'll play three straight home games. I love that Paul Riley described their final regular season game as a quarterfinal to try to get right. you know the players pumped up for that. Uh, so thoughts on what we're going to see this Sunday? Well, it's very fascinating. Um, the coaches have known each other for a long time, and they were, there was a conference call on Tuesday afternoon, and Rory Dames was asked about the center back matchup. And he immediately said, we're not sure how we're going to set up this weekend, meaning don't be so quick to say that Julie Ertz and Tierna Davidson are going to be playing center back. Riley, right before that, has said, we actually love Julie Earth at center back because she wreaks so much havoc in the midfield. Take her out of midfield any day. Now, they haven't played the Courage since Ertz and Davidson went back there. And they also, Courage haven't beaten the Red Stars this year. So, you know, it's hard to say that you absolutely have to have Ertz and Davidson back there. But using that as a backdrop, I can't see him pulling Ertz out of the back. They've given up two goals in six matches since they went to that setup and they've given up two goals. I think there might have been a non a non converted PK in there. But even if you made it three, that's still three goals over six games. Um but I mean the game honestly it revolves around Sam Kerr. Can the Red Stars get Sam Kerr in behind and if so can she finish? And if not, then can the Courage finish? Because the if the Courage are gonna you know if the Courage were gonna lose to the rain, it was gonna be because they couldn't finish their chances. And it sort of kind of almost happened I don't think there was ever a moment in that match where anyone said, oh, the Rain are going to win. But it was close, and it went to extra time, so you never know what's going to happen. But I think that really is the key to this one. Dames also jumped on the notion that, well, we're finally in the final, so we're going to be very relaxed, and we're the underdog. And that was kind of like trying to steal the underdog thunder from Paul Riley. You know, I mean, Riley could be playing a U9 team, and he could convince you that his team was the underdog. So um, it'll be interesting. They played in the last two playoffs in the semis. I didn't think either game was extraordinarily compelling. But, uh, you know, for people who don't want to see the same final three years in a row, you get your wish. And Sam Kerr, who, by the way, is the only Red Star to ever have played in a previous final, which is unusual because all we talked about was how she hadn't scored in big games, which she did play in the final six years ago right. with the Flash, first one ever. Um well, and that and speaks to Chicago's roster. Speaks to Chicago's roster of how Rory has meticulously been building this team over the years. I mean, as I was updating all their playoff stats, you know, it's like you look back; so many of them have started all the last four, you know, uh, the previous semifinals, you know, or at least three of them. Like, like there's so much continuity, you know. And I remember working in the, in the truck this weekend. Some of the people doing the graphics are like, "Wait, no one on Chicago has sp- scored a playoff goal." I was like, well, they've only scored one playoff goal in franchise history. That player is no longer on the team. Yeah, that player is no longer on the team. Everyone else has only been on this team, really. Yeah, Morgan (laughs) Bryan is the main one that was elsewhere, and she was in Houston, and they've never been in the playoffs. Well, Um, Mayer wouldn't have scored a goal, but Mayer came from Boston. Right, you know McCaskill and Johnson, but yeah, like just yeah, I was like, I was like, really, no one has scored a playoff. So I told him, I said, have the lower third graphic ready for every player that says first playoff goal, yep. because regardless who scores, it'll be their first playoff goal. Yeah, it's um, amazing. 
And I'm really looking forward to this weekend because one, it's a different matchup, right? Like it can get tiring to have the same matchup, uh, you know, year, year after year. Um, I like that it's in a different place, even though I, you know, I know Portland fans would rather have uh, the final at home, even if they're not in it. Um, I, I feel like TV of course would rather have the largest crowd possible and in a great setting, but I love the idea that it's moving around and when you've got a venue that small, you know, it, it shouldn't be hard for it to be, you know, nice and full and loud and kind of, and, and there's so much history, uh, not only to North Carolina when it comes to women's soccer, but also that park specifically, you know, that, that venue opened in 2002 and its very first game was a WSA women's pro soccer game. You know, Heather O'Reilly scored her first international goal there. Uh, All your UCLA players, that's where they won their 2013 championship. You know, the USA has played there a lot. We had the WSA all-star game in 2000, like so many great things. So I'm kind of glad to see the research triangle getting this game. And when I went there for the playoffs, and you were there for that game, right, two years ago? Yeah, 2017. 2017 semi. Yeah, the semi. Yeah. Yep. And um, when I was there for that game, my thought was this would this is a great venue for a final because it's not huge, it's fillable, and it's a very nice setting. So we'll see if I have to eat those words or if it turns out to be a nice venue <laughs> for the final. And it doesn't look like the weather's looking great at the moment. You know, but the only time, the only thing I'll disagree with you on a little bit, they're moving the final around, and you know that I am at the front of the line, that this thing should go to different venues all the time. But we only got the media schedule on Tuesday, which was sent out, by the way, during the Louisville announcement. <laughs> like, they have not taken, and it's not about the media schedule, but they have not taken advantage at all of this thing being at a neutral site. So that's that's what I was that's what I was going to add where where it's like it's great that you have a neutral site but if you don't promote it, it you know what what's right. what's and, the point if, the you, don't, if you don't make a, row, a big deal around it. And it's the second year in a row they got lucky because Portland got in so they filled the play. You know Portland only had 14 and change. I say only 14 and change, but that's a low number for them for their semi last year, but they packed it for the final. Here's an interesting thing about the courage. I wasn't sure I wanted to say this, but what the heck. Last year, when the when the storm pushed the courage out, and they had to go play that semi in Portland, and uh-huh. everybody in the front office was whining about how well we were going to sell the game out, and you know we had to refund all this money and stuff. All right, I I get that. A year later, they only got seventy four hundred for the semi. Like they couldn't sell the semi out a year later. I think. Uh, I mean, I'm going to give him a little bit of uh, room for. I don't know, a little bit of defense in that uh, it's a month, it's more than a month later. uh, So it's falling at a different time. And I heard that there were a lot of different, and there will be this weekend too, a lot of other things going on. I think, I think there's a state fair that overlapped last weekend and this weekend, which is the sort of thing, kind of like the pride parade in Orlando that the league needs to either be aware of and avoid or be aware of and join forces with. And I'm being somewhat facetious about this, but it's just ironic that there was all this complaining last year about how they were, they had the thing sold out and then they came back in another year and changed and didn't sell it out. And right, I think the, right, but, but what you just said about Portland though, where they had a small semi and, and, and then sold right. it out. So maybe that's a fan thing of like, yeah, that could be, that could well, be. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to commit to both. There's a good chance we'll be in the final. Let's see. 
That could be. And the reason I think that the that it's not compelling if they were to have played Portland again, I mean, they played in 16 when their courage were the flash, and that's probably, if not the best, the most intense, memorable NWSL game oh, of all time. Oh, so amazing. Both so of those far. semifinals, if you haven't seen them on YouTube, please, people, go watch Absol- those. Absolutely. Very different, but all but very intense. And now the league is trying their best to make you forget that the courage wherever the flash. But that aside, the last two finals, the 2017 final is maybe the worst final I've ever seen in soccer. Men's, women's, youth, whatever, college, anything. It's horrible. And then last year was fun to see how good the courage were, but that game was non-competitive. Last time right. they played, the courage won 6 nothing in Portland. So I don't think there was a lot of interest in the in seeing the game happen again on those grounds. I think when I think if you had more games like 2016, people would be more into seeing, you know, how is this one going to go? But I don't think they have been I don't think the last two have been games where you're like, "Oh, I'd love to see this one again." Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um and that's why I love this matchup that Chicago has lost twice to North Carolina, the only two times they've met in the playoffs. But in the regular season, Chicago is the only team with a winning record against North Carolina, and North Carolina didn't beat them this season. So yep. uh, <laughs> like, that's just a perfect, perfect lineup. So last question I, for you, Dan. Wait, let, me just, let me just say okay. this. If, Go ahead. You know, if you're going back and you're just going to pull up box scores, that two years ago game, it was the Denise O'Sullivan goal that should have been a Julie Yurt's own goal. 89th uh-huh. minute, I think, one nothing. Uh-huh. Do not be fooled by that. That game could have been twelve nothing. And the Red Stars <laughs> were the, the Red Stars almost equalized in stoppage time, but they were not scoring before that. I mean, twelve nothing. I'm exaggerating, but that game was lopsided. So don't be fooled by the fact that that was one nothing on an 89th yeah. minute goal off of a knee. So last question: who's who's going to be who's going to be our breakout MVP ish? amazing performance player from this final? I want to say that it's Dabinia. I think that I was pleasantly surprised to see Dabinia get on the uh, as an MVP finalist. I expect her, based on that, to be on the best 11, where I think she belongs. I know she scored the first goal in last year's final, but I don't know that people fully appreciate how good Dabinia is and how important Dabinia is because she is on a team with so many other players she can she defends extraordinarily well uh if it's the if Ertz comes out of the back I think the Red Stars will lose but if she somehow comes out of the back and they win and I don't think American soccer fans need to be you know taught about Julie Ertz I thought she should have won the golden ball (laughs) at the World Cup but if she gets into the midfield you never know I think Daniel Colaprico is an extraordinary player uh, but likely won't be involved in a lot of the scoring Um, and you know what if you haven't really watched Yuki Nagasato pay attention to her the vision that she had to find Sam Kerr for the goal the other day and then the way she killed that game in the last five minutes were both extraordinary so Kerr got the goal got the glory, but I think Nagasato was the most important player on the day. And there's Nagasato and Kerr, such a great combo. And I like what you're saying about Dabinia um, and want to give a shout out to a stat that you called to my attention this weekend. Dabinia's free kick goal, uh, the game winner against the rain this weekend was the first free kick goal 
in the playoffs since Tobin Heath's game winner in the 2013 final. Yep, and that one was memorable. That's one of the great free kick goals I've ever seen. But what was memorable about that was that Heath had hurt her foot in the semi, didn't practice all week, and then hit that free kick with her injured foot. Amazing. Something else worth watching on YouTube, of course. Well, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, as always, to talk NWSL expansion, future seasons, expansion drafts, and of course, the championship game this weekend. And of course, you and I will both be part of Wosico this Saturday uh, in Caring. We hope a lot of our listeners will join us for that. So be sure to check out Dan's coverage on EqualizerSoccer.com. And anything else you want to throw in, Dan? Um, just that what your last comment about the Tobin Heath free kick on YouTube in the 2013 final, the first hour of that game is the most intense hour of any women's soccer final that we've had. <laughs> Ironically <laughs> enough, there was a red card that put the thorns down a player and that kind of, the game kind of died from there. But the first hour of that match is, is intense. I would, I might go back and watch it myself. All right. Thanks so much, Dan. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Sandra Herrera from Southside Trap Podcast and Hot Time in Old Town, of course, all about Chicago. And we have Sandra on today because, yeah, Chicago Red Stars. Sandra, I mean, have you recovered yet from that historic semifinal win? Man, they did it. I I think, uh, (laughs) I don't know if I'll ever recover. I haven't had a lot of sleep since then because, you know, similar to the Red Stars, quick turnaround for the media folk, right? Like, you go through that and then you got to hit the ground running again for for coverage of uh, this other big game that they've got coming up. Yeah. Um, So thoughts on on the game. I mean, first, I want to hear from you what you know about the team's preparation, given that they did not play an NWSL game between their home finale on September 28th and then hosting this playoff game on October 20th, just the way the international break and the schedule fell, they had the bye week for that final week of the regular season. So, you know, talk about how you prepare for a big game, but with such a long break. Yeah, correct. So it was, it was about three weeks in between um, their regular season home game and this, uh, postseason semifinal match that they took part in. And the coaching staff had basically alternated what was essentially going to be like an off week for, for some of their players. So uh, some of their international players, whether it was the U.S. national team players who were obviously in camp for the end, the both final pair of victory tour friendlies. Right. Um, they got time in camps and they got, they got games under their belt. Um, they had a couple of internationals leave, you know, for additional camps. Uh, you had um, Maria Sanchez and Katie Johnson had to head out to Mexico to join camps um, with the Mexican women's national team. Um, so their, their national team players were able to get, get camps and stuff like that. In. But their, um, all the other players on the roster sort of alternated um, their training week. Um, and then eventually everybody reconvened together to sort of uh, build up to the uh, semifinal. And uh, you would think uh, maybe not getting a game in there would really heavily factor into the rest stars and, and their sort of uh, the chemistry that we've heard so much about and have seen on the pitch um, this year. 
but uh, just being in a couple trainings and being able to to see how they they train, uh, that roster really makes each other better in terms of uh, raising the bar for everybody there. Well, and and I like there was a comment from Rory Dames talking about how usually they. Uh, reach the end of the season and, and the roster's kind of falling apart, you know, either you've got just nagging injuries or, you know, exhaustion or something like that. And it, differently for this season, it seems like they've recovered from some injuries and maybe that break gave them the additional rest that they needed. Yeah, you know, in years prior for the Red Stars, they, they definitely, uh, for lack of a better word or verbiage, they definitely kind of limped into the playoffs. Right? <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, uh, this year, whether it was a World Cup year and being able to, to manage player minutes and or kind of really forcing them to make adjustments with some of the injuries, the players that they lost in this season, um, coupled with sort of this um, – this bye week and ending the regular season early, I think it actually worked in in their favor uh, heading into this playoff. Uh, we saw, you know, a player like Danny Colaprico who had, you know, really gone through some injuries after returning into this season from W League. And then we're starting to see a very healthy Danny Colaprico at probably the best time the Red Sox could ask for. And just the cohesion on this team. I mean, one of the things that always stands out to me anytime I'm doing TV notes for a game that has Chicago in it is how so many of these players have been with this club so many years, you know, so like Colaprico, DiBernardo, um, Naughton, Wright, Ertz, you know, and now this is Nair's fourth season, you know, like just all the pieces uh, that know each other so well. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It was funny to sort of um, hear the players and sort of where their mentality was at heading into that semifinal match. Uh, in terms of the messaging coming from these players, uh, you didn't hear anything different. Everything was always very locked in, um, being focused on the semifinal, uh, the concept of fighting for each other, um, that, that type of verbiage was used a lot, and um, just really sort of making sure that they maintain what they've been doing all year within this semifinal. And uh, it really came through. And a big part of that does come into play with players who have played so many years with each other. And on top of all those, you know, other players that you mentioned, you know, you even have a player like Sarah Gordon, who's, who's got drafted with Katie Naughton. And right. Draft, and she's right. a local kid. And, and we saw an amazing game out of her on the semifinal. Uh, she really helped spearhead that goal, the, what was essentially the game-winning goal in the semifinal. Yeah, I mean, all all those pieces, you know, uh, having played together so long, I think it, it brings more meaning to the we're playing for each other. And, and in some ways, I think it's so similar to what's been built over the years at North Carolina. When you look back at the 2016 final where Western New York Flash edged Washington Spirit on, on penalties, so many of those players – uh, you know, they're still on the North Carolina roster, you know, McDonald's, William, cool. Dahl Kemper, Hinkle, et cetera. It's, it, it's crazy. So that's why I'm really looking forward to this weekend's match as just, you know, two um, 
clubs with history, which is a fun thing to say when when we think of how short the tenures have usually been of women's soccer leagues in in this country. And here now we have a league that's more than twice as old as either of the previous ones. Um, and then also the the storylines of Chicago has faced North Carolina in the semi in semifinals in the playoffs twice, but lost both times. However, in the regular season, Chicago is the only team that North Carolina has a losing record against. So I, the the way these teams line up are going to make for a fascinating final. So what are you looking for? What do you think will be the most dynamic matchups between Chicago and, and North Carolina on Sunday? I mean, player to player or just, you know, things you're going to be looking for. Uh, I'm in agreement with you about these two teams and, and their, their histories around each other. I think both of both of these squads are going to be utilizing um, all of those similar narratives to try to help motivate them, you know, sort of getting the best of each other, whether it was in a regular season or postseason. And, um, you know, two teams that, like you had said, you know, built have players that they built up, you know, by jacking them and having really good players along their back line and then having a really good top line, you know, these players that can change things up at at any second in the match. So, but I think really for Sunday, it's going to come down to the midfield. Honestly, I think if I'm looking for, for matchups in, in this championship final, we absolutely have to look to the midfield, whether it's uh, for Chicago, whether it's the tandem of Morgan Bryan and Danny Colaprico, who just really, really were running everywhere on the semifinal against uh, Portland Thorns. They uh, they must have ran like several miles, like in terms of uh, all the coverage that they were doing on that pitch. And I don't think this match is going to be any uh, different. I really do think whether it's North Carolina or Chicago, the tempo within the midfield is going to dictate how how the, the outcome of this match. Well, and I'm glad you brought up Morgan Bryan because I think she's had uh, such a solid season once she got settled with the Red Stars following the World Cup. And, you know, because she entered the league in a World Cup year, so, you know, we barely saw her the same for 2016 in Olympic year, and then just the off and on struggles with injury, right? So, um it's it's kind of nice to see her starting regularly and we're starting to see that Morgan Bryan that, you know, we, we saw back in 2015 and early 2016. So I, I think she could be maybe the surprise star of the final. I would agree with you. I think she, she was actually one of those stars of the semifinal, to be quite honest. We were talking about a team that really sort of locked themselves in to try to close out a match against a team like Portland Thorns that could strike on you in any second. Uh, they really started to do right. that right around the 75th, 76th minute. And when it came down to those final, you know, five, six, seven minutes before the match, there was this really great combining play between Yuki Nagasato and Morgan Bryan. It was really this combined effort to really kill off the clock towards the end of the match there. And uh, the way Morgan Bryan and her ability on the ball, her patience on the ball, her vision is absolutely been something that has been crucial to the Red Stars' success this season. Uh, there are things that she can do both on and off the ball that benefit Chicago, I think, obviously throughout this whole season, but really heading into this semifinal match, or excuse me, championship final match. <laughs> Well, and we can't say enough about Yuki Nagasato and Sam Kerr, so I'm not going to try to say very much other than I love how 
of Yuki's assists this season, all but one have come on a Sam Kerr goal. Like there, yeah, that well, partnership is just such a beautiful partnership. Yeah, it's a, it's really, it's really been something to watch over the last really two seasons. Not just talking about this one. Um, you know, when Sam Kerr, when they made the trade for Sam Kerr last season, and she started to get more involved uh, with the Red Stars. I believe she came a little bit later within the league. She participated in preseason, but really didn't start linking up with the team until about April of last year. And their chemistry just took off immediately and uh our our friend and colleague john helen he he had a really good piece during that season with the united shadow and she was so excited about the idea and the concept of being able to play with a player like sam kerr and she took all of that energy and all that excitement and helped really create this amazing uh duo and tandem that we've seen for the red Stars this year it's it, it probably wasn't surprising for anybody uh, to see Yuki Narita and Sam Kerr combine for that game-winning goal in the semifinal. Yeah, just such such a beautiful thing to see. And then I, I want to give a shout-out, too, to Alyssa Nair, because one of the things I was thinking about in the TV truck Sunday, you know, watching that game unfold, is, you know, here's a player who started off with Boston Breakers, um, had a pretty challenging season in 2014 when she set the record for most saves. It's, it's been broken since, but you know, usually when you're setting the record for most saves, it's because you're just <laughs> facing shot after shot, after shot, after shot, and you're right. probably on, on one of the lower teams. And so uh, when I think of this year for her, you know, starting at the world cup, winning the world cup, kind of establishing her own goalkeeper identity, you know, having come over to Chicago a few seasons back and then, you know, getting this, not only a win, but a shutout win in the playoffs. It just like, that's, I I like that storyline. Yeah. There was so much pressure that uh, was being kind of thrown upon her, right. Heading into the world cup year as as the national team went into France and to sort of see, uh, the season that she's put together, both on the national team level, along with club. I mean, this this team, these last uh, five to six matches have, you know, defensively, and that's, you know, helped led by Alyssa Nader, um, have really done something pretty special. When Once they sort of fix up that, that back line to who they wanted them set to look like, you know, that center back pairing with Julie Ertz and Tierna Davidson in the outside back positions with, you know, Katie Short, and Sarah Gordon and having Alyssa Mayer in that and just sort of watching their cohesion, you know, just specifically them. Uh, they have, I think they've only allowed two goals, I think, since, like, my friend right. be wrong on that. You're, you're the key. Right. No, no, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I believe it's only, I believe it's only two goals that they've allowed. Um, since they've been, uh, that specific backline has been working and connecting together. And that's 100% also because of Alyssa Mayer and her. The way she's vocal back there for that line is is absolutely crucial. And, and when you have somebody like Alyssa Nair and then obviously somebody like Julia Ertz who's just as vocal, you know, wearing that captain garment, having the vision of the pitch, um, it helps a lot. So uh, the defense, we'll see how the defense looks. I know there was a conference call and, you know, Rory Danes and the coaching staff are thinking of a number of ways of how their uh, players are going to look on the pitch for the final. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if you take that risk or not or roll the dice of having, you know, pushing Juliers out of that, you know, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens because that back line has been pretty phenomenal. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of the many reasons it's going to be such an intriguing final is there are multiple ways these teams can line up against each other. You know, a lot, lot of great storylines in, intersecting all in the same place. But talk about uh, the Chicago fans. I mean, I, I thought the turnout was great, especially considering you're going to head-to-head with the Chicago Bears game. And, you know, it might not sound like a lot. What was it, 9,700, 9,400? That's still, you know, close to five times what the Red Stars saw at their playoff game back in 2015. Yeah, exactly. No, it's um, and I'm glad you brought up like the the Bears game. I think a lot of people forget uh, what the Red Stars sort of uh, go up against, being a, the right. type of team that they are in the market that they are. Um, you know, this yeah. is a major city. It's a top three city in the United States. I mean, there's nearly three million people here, and on top of that, there's you know, it's a very sports saturated city. Um, yeah. So you're talking about a weekend where Chicago and uh, make plans to literally just hang out in a bar for the entire day and watch a Bears game. Um, that's what people, that's, a, that's an event <laughs> for people. That's an event for people in the city. They'll, they'll link up with their friends and, and go to a, a bar and, and watch the game and, and have a good time there. They they don't even have to go to Soldier Field. They'll just do it at a local bar. So uh, <laughs> the, I think the three week uh, lead up to this semifinal for the, the club was um, a really important point. Uh, you know, an important tool for them to utilize as far as being able to push tickets and kind of, you know, advertise the game and really try to help establish and create really a scene and mood for this uh, semifinal match. And that coupled with that, you know, like you said, a huge role in that was the concept of supporters culture and the Red Stars official supporters group, Chicago Local 134, uh, really played a huge role in helping to make sure that that environment was in place the whole way through. Uh, and they did a number of events uh, to help promote this semifinal. They did a number of events to spread the word out about it. And uh, there was a supporter who started a rideshare group on, on, face, on Facebook. Uh, there was the reaching out and communicating with additional supporters groups. Uh, there were supporters groups that are used to supporting the Chicago fire and they came out mm-hmm. in droves to support the Chicago red stars. And they were following Chicago local one, three, four's lead on supporting the red stars. And, um, you know, again, just having all that buildup and all that time to work on things It allowed the club to work on this really great promotional video for the red stars, this kind of hyped video that started going around on, social media, whether it was Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And, you know, it ended up bleeding over into the semifinal, you know, that chance that the crowd started seeing and it started building in the supporter section. And really quite organically, it just ended up growing into the entire stadium. So it really, uh, it really was something to see and really something to witness. And, um, you know, you did a good job when, um, People were surprised. I noticed. I saw that reaction on social media. People were surprised. They were like, "The attendance number is nine thousand two hundred. It sounds like there's twenty thousand people there. Like, that's how you know, know. You did your job and did a good job." Yeah, yeah. And the cheers were great. And you know, and the the fans got rewarded. And do you think we'll see a lot of them travel to carry for the final? Uh, we'll see. Uh, I know that they have uh, plans in motion to try to, you know, 
extend support for Red Star's men who do want to make that trip. Uh, and I think there's people who are looking up flights and trying to share the information uh, on that way and trying to also help, uh, you know, plan pre-seat, or not pre-season, but pre-championship uh, fi- uh, final events as well. Um, so if people who want to socialize prior to the championship final, they should probably, their best bet is to get in touch with uh, Chicago Local 134 if they're looking for um, a way to sort of rally with uh, Red Stars fans. Sounds good. Well, Sandra, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about uh, the big semifinal, and, and I'm sure we'll be seeing you in Cary this weekend. So any any last thoughts on this final? Uh, it's going to be a banger. It's going to be good. I think uh, there's two teams that match up well against each other, and uh, they have good histories between them. And uh, I think uh, people are going to be being uh, being witness to a, a good show. <laughs> All right. I hope so. Time to wrap it up with the back four. First and foremost, the NWSL Championship game this Sunday, October 27th, live on ESPN beginning 3.30 p.m. Eastern. Defending champions North Carolina Courage taking on Chicago Red Stars who have reached their first ever NWSL final. Tickets for the game still available, nwslsoccer.com slash championship, and that site also lists a few hotels in the area. Should be a great game. If you're anywhere near Cary, you should get your ass there. And if you're heading to Cary, you should check out my women's soccer conference, aka Wosico. Makes it sound much more fun because it is much more fun than just a regular conference. Got a Q&A with Becca Morris from the Utah Royals. I'm doing some trivia, some history presentations. We've got Andrew Helm from the ESPN 30 for 30 podcast about the WSA. So you can go to keepernotes.com, click on the Wosico link, sign up. Uh, Should be a great event, but keep in mind space is limited. So do not wait to sign up. And then looking ahead, soon as the end of result season is over, we should hear who the new U.S. Women's National Team coach is, and that coach will get to name a roster for the November Friendlies. They'll play Sweden November 7th, Costa Rica November 10th, and apparently there will be a December camp as well without any uh, official games. And yes, Alex Morgan has announced that she is pregnant, so she will not be part of those games or those camps. Last but not least, coming up very soon, we have college conference tournaments kicking off in early November. Then on Monday, November 11th, we'll have the bracket announcement for the NCAA tournament. And the final four, also known as the College Cup, will be played in early December in San Jose. Uh, Semifinals on Friday the 6th, final on Sunday the 8th. Uh, That will be played at Avaya Stadium in San Jose. Definitely worth buying tickets for if you're anywhere near that venue. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Home Women's Soccer Podcast. Looking forward to seeing a lot of women's soccer fans in Cary this weekend. Many thanks, as always, to my listeners, the people that tweet about this podcast, and, of course, Sean for putting it all together. But now she's anybody's girl.